Hi, I'm Jamie Warren. Hi, my name is Hallie Bogart. <clears throat> my name is Perry Tankard II. Uh, my name is Victor Wallace. I manage a car wash and detail center in Durham. Also known as DJP Dog, which stands for Perry Depends on God's Grace. Um, I'm involved with uh, Refugee Ministry in Durham. Um, partner with World Relief uh, as a summit member, just volunteering, trying to partner uh, volunteers with refugee communities in Durham. The Lord just pressed on my heart that there was a need here and the need was great. Um, and so my wife and I pretty much planted our lives back into the East Durham community to do ministry there. All the times that we've been at Urban Ministries of Durham serving and when we served last year, um, when you're there, you, you, I always think this is the place where Jesus would be. This year at Serve RDU, um, we are working on a house for the prison ministry where currently one inmate uh, lives and then another one will live once he's released at the end of this month. Throughout the year, we have made, served dinner um, to over 200 people. Um, so we want to live out the gospel um, in the community. We don't want to just talk about it. Our motivation to serve is based on what Christ has done for me and my wife. And that's been the, um, the, the movement forward in trying to serve others in our community. Just God has done a work in our lives and out of that we want to serve. And we want to serve Durham. And we want it to be a regular part of our lives. We believe that living out the gospel means that we have to be living sacrifices. Um, and what that means is we have to get in uh, positions that aren't comfortable. Serve RDU is a launching pad for ongoing ministry throughout the year. If you're not plugged in somewhere already, we would love to have you come out um, during these days and, and serve and to see how God would lead you um, into developing relationships with those who need to know um, the good news. It could be a great platform to get your feet wet, to see what doing ministry is about in the community, see what it looks like, see what it feels like. Serve RDU Week is a great opportunity for members of Summit to find their niche in God's kingdom. I think Serve RDU Week can be a great starting point, not to just serve and that's it, but to serve and make it an ongoing part of your life, uh, ministering in Durham. Good morning, everybody. I hold here in my hands a copy of an article from Friday's edition of the New York Times, page A22. Uh, some of you may have seen this, some of you may have not, so I will share it with you. Uh, the article reads like this, the thief who snatched a buckle-covered bag from a young woman with a glossy black ponytail and designer sunglasses on Thursday afternoon in Queens might have thought it would be an easy crime. He most likely did not expect the firefighter who came sprinting after him, throwing him off balance, or the two strapping church missionaries, young men visiting from North Carolina, who hurtled into the fray and tackled him to the ground. One missionary, Andre Agamby, 19 years old, a student at Duke University, had spent the day on the plaza with his church group peers from Durham, reading the Bible and chatting with passersby about God. We were sitting right there, so I just jumped up, and I threw him to the ground, he said. <laughs> Mr. Agamby, who pounced on the man along with Mark Haywood, 21, from the church group, 
said he glimpsed something polished and brown in the pocket of the man's cargo pants. He started slowly reaching for his pocket, Mr. Ogenby said. By the time I thought about it, he grabbed the gun, pointed it at someone who was behind him, lifted it up, shot it, and ran. Within 10 minutes, the police had roped off the area. On the trash-strewn plaza, which had been cleared of people, behind a barricade of yellow caution tape, a bullet hole, and the shooter's Navy baseball cap were all that remained, and the young missionaries. Their arms around each other in a prayer circle, they stood by as their two friends were taken aside for questioning by detectives. With an almost eerie level of calm, each of the young people gave thanks to God. If anything had happened to Andre or Mark, they would be going to heaven, and they would be rejoicing with our Lord because they knew Christ as their Savior, said Catherine Batchelor, 18, who was traveling with her peers on an eight-week mission trip from the Summit Church, a Southern Baptist congregation in Raleigh, North Carolina. Her voice trembled. It's just a beautiful thing, she said. Local residents and shop owners were far less stoic, but the missionaries were still, were still cheerful, even as some climbed into, into a patrol van for more questioning at the precinct. As they headed out, the two young men joked about the tense phone calls they would inevitably be making to their parents that night. What did you do today, Mr. Ogenby said, pantomiming the call. Hung out, chased some guy, almost got shot, shared the gospel. <laughs> New York Times um, on Friday. Isn't that awesome? Somehow, I don't think that made it into the job description for what summer mission projects would look like at the Summit Church, but this is what some of our college students are doing for their Serve RDU project this summer. What are you doing, right? That's a good, good question there. I spent Shelton, our small groups pastor, sent out a tweet on Friday that said, uh, it appears that some of our Summit students are moonlighting as Batman in, uh, in New York City um, this week, but... Uh, uh, you know, uh, Serve RDU is something we do each summer that we really, it is, it is designed um, to give us just a very focused week. It's not something we do one week a year and then forget about, but one week a year um, where we can set aside some time just to demonstrate the love of Christ to our community. Um, I've told you this before, but um, our mission as a church in many ways is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible in the community. And so we take a few days to be able to put on display the generosity and the glory of Christ. So we do something, I know it's kind of bold, but we ask you between the dates of July 11th and 14th that you take at least a day, um, if you work, take a day off of work, maybe two days, and just give it to serving in one of our many projects that are going on around the city. We have them literally going on all over the triangle at all times. And so we want everybody who calls this church their home, whether you're officially a member or not, to be involved serving our community and making the invisible uh, kingdom of God visible during, uh, during that particular time. All right, we provided you with some great projects this summer, and uh, we will do our best not to let you get shot. That is our commitment to you, okay? Um, your commitment is to, is to sign up. All right, uh, all right, here we go. Um, several uh, years ago, um, on one afternoon, um, I was playing a pickup basketball game uh, at a local basketball court uh, when I started to play one-on-one -on -one with a, a guy that I'd seen before but I'd never met. Um, we were playing a game called 21, which is just, you know, kind of a one-on-one -on -one game. And about halfway through that game, uh, and the guy, he was a pretty interesting character. Um, I mean, he, you know, he just, uh, he, had, he had a long um, ponytail, came down to the small of his back. He had so many tattoos on his face, I honestly did not know what the original color of his skin was. 
Um, he had so many piercings in his face that he looked like he had fallen headfirst into a tackle box. Um, I, you know, it's, uh, he, he, the whole time he just cursed like a sailor, could not put a sentence together without two or three expletives in it, um, and bragged the entire time about uh, how many girls he had slept with. Um, now, you know, I'm not trying to, 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 you know, say there's anything wrong with, you know, having long hair or, uh, you know, having piercings or tattoos. That's not the point of that. It's just to help you see that this guy did not fit the profile of somebody that you think had been in church a lot. Um, he, he looked like a pretty good, you know, depiction of the unchurched. And so about halfway um, through our game, I started to share my story of how I came to Christ. And um, after about three sentences into my testimony, he stopped, grabbed the basketball, put it on his hip, and he said, dude, are you trying to witness to me? And I was a little kind of thrown off because he knew the word witness. And I'm like, this is an unchurched guy. He knows the word witness. And I, I said, well, uh, you know, and I didn't say anything. And, uh, and he said, he said, he goes, bro, that's so awesome. He goes, I haven't had somebody try to witness to me in a long time. He said, let me tell you something about my background that you probably um, wouldn't know. He said, I grew up in a, in a place where my grandparents took me to church a lot. He said, I went to a lot of the events. He said, when I was 14 years old, I went to a student camp. And he said, man, the preacher got up there during student camp, and he preached a killer sermon, and I felt so convicted about my sin. And when they gave that response time at the end, he said, I came forward, and I prayed to receive Jesus in my heart. He said, man, I just had this, like, it, it was a powerful moment. I cried, and I, he said, my life immediately changed. I started to read my Bible every day. I got involved in my youth group. I went every week. I memorized a lot of verses. I went on mission trips. He said, I did that little true love waits thing, the, um, uh, you know, where you, you promise not to have sex, you get married and wear a ring to show it. Uh, he said, I, you, you guys remember that? You remember that? All right. Um, he, said, uh, he said, I did all that stuff. He said, for two years, I was like super Christian. He said, when I turned 16 or 17, he said, I, um, he said, I, these were his words. He said, I discovered sex. He said, and I decided I like sex. And he said, I didn't want, you know, God telling me who I could have sex with and who I didn't. So I decided for a while to put God on hold. And I thought I'd just put God on hold for a few years while I enjoyed, you know, these 16, 17, 18, um, th th those ages in my life. He said, but then I went to college and I just decided that this was kind of a permanent attitude I wanted to have. He said, so I just kind of quit believing in God. He said, if I were honest, I would admit that, that it was my, you know, desire for there to be no God that drove that. He said, but now here I am, you know, several years later, I don't believe in God at all. He said, and I do whatever I want. But then he stopped and he said this. He goes, but bro, here's what is awesome. He said, the church that I was saved in was a Southern Baptist church. And we taught the doctrine of eternal security, which is the idea that once you've been saved, you're always saved. And he said, he looked at me, he said, now aren't you a Baptist? Aren't you a Southern Baptist? And, uh, you know, kind of awkward silence for me. And uh, he said, he said, why, you know, he goes, I think you are. He said, he said, so here's what's awesome. He said, even if you're right, even if there really is a God, and even if Jesus is the only way that you can be saved, he said, I'm covered. I'm covered, because I prayed to receive Jesus, and clearly, you know, my life took off for a while. He goes, even though I don't believe in God anymore, even if there is a God and Jesus is the only way, he says, I'm okay either way. So whether you're right or I'm right, everything's going to be fine for me. Now, what do you say to a guy like that? What's your response to a guy like that? Right? I mean, you know, is he right? Is he right? Can he, because he made a decision at some point in the past, live with the assurance that he's saved forever, regardless of how he lives now? I mean, I do believe the Bible teaches eternal security, which is the idea that once you've really come to Christ, you, you, know, you never fall away. But, but is that, is he, is he correct 
that once you've received, that's what eternal security means? I'll show you in a minute why I believe in eternal security, but that, you understand the dilemma? We're going to look at a passage of scripture today that addresses just that question right there. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that addresses that question. It is Hebrews chapter 6, specifically verses 4 through 6. But as you are turning there, let me first explain, let me first explain why it is that I do believe in eternal security. All right, let me explain why I believe that, which is again the idea that once that you've been saved by Jesus, you're saved forever. That's what eternal security means, all right? Here, here, here's why. I'm going to give you a few references. You ought to write these down. You can kind of plunge in more deeply to them later. Um, I'm just going to go, you know, give them to you real quick. Uh, John 6, 37 through 39, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will, what's that next word, church? Never, everybody else say it. What's that next word? Never cast out, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should raise, excuse me, that I should lose, what's that next word? Nothing. How many is nothing? Zero. That's what it is. I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise all of them up on the last day. All that the Father gives to Jesus come. All that come are saved. None of them are ever lost. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will, what is it? Never perish, and no one will snatch any of them out of my hand. Jesus gives his sheep eternal life, and they never perish. And even the enemy, try as he may, cannot pluck a child of God from the hand of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now again, there's no room for any of them to be lost there. He doesn't say like some of those who've been predestined and called, he also glorified. God has a really good recidivism rate, right? And so 80% of the ones that he calls and justifies, 80% of them he gets to heaven. No, he says all of them. Once God puts you on that train, you're making it all the way to the station. The conductor makes sure that you don't fall off. So all those he predestines and calls, they're the ones he justifies, and all the ones he justifies, he also glorifies. So that's why I believe in eternal security, because of verses like that. But with that knowledge, having said that, I want you to read this warning in Hebrews 6 that seems, on the surface at least, like it is saying exactly the opposite. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, listen. For it is impossible, in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, before we get into unpacking that, let's first make sure that we know the context of that verse because it always helps whenever you're interpreting any verse in the Bible to know the context. We say that a text without a context becomes a pretext, which means that basically you're using the verse to make it say whatever you want to. All right, so let me give you the context of this. Last week, I told you that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 5 brings up a pretty obscure Old Testament prophet named Melchizedek. That's right. And right after he brings him up in chapter 5, remember this? Right after he brings him up, immediately he seems to get hacked off that the people he's writing to don't already understand this stuff. I mean, after all, he's like, these are Hebrew people. And if anybody, they should understand the significance of guys like Melchizedek in the Old Testament. 
right? I mean, they're Hebrew. How you like? How do you know they're Hebrew people? Because of the name of the book, okay? Hebrews. These are Hebrew people, and he's like, the Old Testament was given to you. The Hebrew scriptures, they were written in Hebrew. Of all people, you should understand who Melchizedek is, because you were supposed to take these things and teach them to the rest of the world, but you don't even get it. You don't even get your entire Hebrew Testament. So he goes off on this rant, verse 11 in chapter 5, about this, about Melchizedek. We have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become so dull of hearing. You hear him? You hear how mad he is? I mean, he's like, you, I, I would love to explain this. In fact, you should be explained to me, but you are so dumb. This is essentially how you would translate that. Verse 12, for, by, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Then he starts talking about the difference between milk and meat. He says to them that by this point in their lives, they ought to be eating meat, but they still need to be bottle-fed milk. You know, when you're, when, when you're an infant, all you get is milk and pureed food. But if you're 15 years old and your mom's still cutting up your hot dog for you before you eat, right, or, or, or if you're still nursing at age 15, right, I mean, that's not just a problem, that's, that's creepy. And he's like, here you are, you, you, you still, it's like you're infants. You, you can't handle any of this stuff because it's, you've never grown. So he continues, chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God again, and of instructions about washings, or the laying on of hands, or the resurrection of the dead, or eternal judgment. Now, real quick, just so you don't get confused, he's not talking about leaving the gospel, or leaving Christ behind, and going on to maturity. I mean, it's like I've told you a lot, you know, growth in, growth spiritually is never growth beyond the gospel, it's always growth deeper into the gospel. Um, I mean, what he's talking about, when he talks about moving on, he's talking about the elementary things of Christ. I mean, after all, his definition of deeper is understanding how obscure stories in the Old Testament point to Christ. So what he means by that is we're not talking about moving beyond Christ. We're talking about getting below the surface level of Christ and going deep into who Christ is. Christian growth is never growth beyond Christ. It's like, here's what we say around here. Um, You know, Christ is not the diving board off of which you jump into the pool of Christianity. Christ is the pool itself. Christ is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Z of Christianity. And essentially, all you're doing when you grow spiritually is you grow deeper in Christ. So that's what he's, what he's talking about. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. So he's going to go back to discussing Melchizedek. But before he gets back to Melchizedek, he says, almost in passing, almost just kind of, you know, it's like, a, like a drive-by. He just kind of mentions in passing, verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who've been once enlightened, taste of the heavenly gifts, share in the Holy Spirit, taste of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. All right, wow. What does that verse mean? I mean, there are a number of problems. Do you see them? First, it sounds like you can lose your salvation. You can fall away. Second, it sounds like if you do lose it, you can never get it back again. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So the first question people ask about this passage is, who is he talking to? Is he talking to saved people or is he talking to unsaved people? And some people say, well, clearly it's unsaved people because truly saved people cannot lose their salvation. Yeah, but it sure sounds like he's talking about a saved person, doesn't he? I mean, he says enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That sounds like a saved person. So is he teaching that people who've been saved can lose their salvation? 
and that if you lose it, you can never get it back? Well, that can't be true because there are too many other places in the Bible that teach the opposite. I start with the assumption when I study the Bible that the Bible does not contradict itself. I believe the Bible has one author and the Bible is inerrant. So if you start with that assumption, as I believe you should, then whenever you see what looks like a contradiction, that is an invitation for you to press on it. Because what I'll tell you after many years of studying the Bible is this. It is at those places where it looks like there's a contradiction that if you press through those, underneath that is some of the deepest, richest truth you will find anywhere. Studying the Bible for me over many years has been like, um, like, like coming upon a huge body of water. The first thing you discover about the body of water is like, oh, it's wet. This is different than the ground. Then you, you, know, you put it in your hands and you hold it up to you and you're like, oh, it's pure. You know? And then, you, and then you, you kind of wade out into it and you're like, it's deep. And then if you go all the way around it, you find out, oh, it's all connected. It's the same stuff that's in one place, it's in the other. It's all one body of water. Studying the Bible has been like that for me. And the first thing you find is like, wow, this is a different kind of book. It's different than, than everything else. Then you're like, oh, it's pure. It nourishes my soul. And then you're like, whoa, it's deeper than I ever imagined. And then you're like, wow, from Genesis to Revelation, it's teaching one story. It's all connected. No matter where you tap in, it's all saying the same thing because it's got one author, the Holy Spirit, and one agenda, the gospel. So I start with the assumption that we're not having a writer in Hebrew say one thing and a writer somewhere else saying another one. And if you start with that assumption, as you should, you will find that some of the deepest and richest truth anywhere is found underneath some of these apparent contradictions. That's going to be the case here, all right? Let me give you kind of a thesis statement. If you take notes, I would encourage you to write this down, and I would encourage you to take notes. I think statistically I can prove that it's much, you're much less likely to go to hell if you take notes than if you don't, all right? Just throw that out there. All right, here we go. Um, this passage does not teach that you can lose your salvation, but it does teach you something important about the nature of saving faith, that it endures to the end. This passage does not teach that you can lose your salvation, but it does teach you something very important about the nature of saving faith, namely that it endures to the end. I know you're still feverishly writing that one down, but let me give you my first of two kind of observations I'm going to make about this passage. Um, this first point might be the longest point, like the longest, you know, actual, the actual point is going to be the longest that I've ever given, and I know that if you're a teach speech in high school, this is a bad idea to do to give a point this long, but... I just couldn't shorten it, so you're going to have to deal with it. Number one, the writer is not trying to make a definitive statement about any one person's salvation. He has given a general pastoral warning to a congregation made up of both genuine and superficial believers. The writer is not trying to make a definitive statement about any one person's salvation. He is giving a general pastoral warning to a congregation that is made up of both genuine and superficial believers. Now, I'm going to have them leave that up there for a couple minutes while some of you write that down, but let me explain what I mean by that. I believe those words, enlightened, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of God's word, I believe that these are more descriptions of the movement of a whole than they are of any one particular person. As people who are part of this movement, they have all shared in those things. You see, in every congregation, including this one, there are people who get caught up in the movement but never really deal with Jesus Christ. They participate externally. They come. They get excited. They learn the songs. They pray a sinner's prayer. They get baptized. They maybe join a small group. They might even go on a mission trip. But it never represents for them a deep, profound embrace of Jesus Christ. 
And what the writer is saying to them is essentially this. He's saying, look, if you have seen the glory of Jesus and you've been convinced of the truth of his resurrection, only to return intentionally to the vomit of your sin, what else is there that is left for me to say? What, what possibly could be more convincing than Jesus' death and resurrection? What greater argument is there that is left for God to use? He's kind of bewildered. He's exasperated. I understand what that feels like. I mean, if you're sitting here and you understand that God became man to die for you in your place, right? I mean, that, that, and that doesn't move you or that just creates an apathetic response? Like, well, what else would I have to say? Look at the analogy that, that he, he, he goes with in verse 7. Verse 7, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, and it receives a blessing from God. Verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In other words, if after being properly seeded and watered, a certain piece of ground only produces thorns and thistles, what else do you conclude about that piece of ground but that it's worthless? Right? If you properly plow a ground, you put the right seed in it, and you water it, and the environmental conditions are correct, and all it produces are thorns and thistles and weeds, what else do you conclude but that that piece of soil is worthless? In the same way, the writer says, if after hearing the gospel, only more thorns of rebellion are produced in your heart, what else could be done? What else could I say? God stood in the way of his own justice for you. God, the creator, humiliated himself and became tortured for you. And you hear that and like, yeah, 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 I believe that. I understand that. It just doesn't move me that much. It makes sense. It makes sense to me for you not to believe this stuff at all and walk away. What does not make sense is for you to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I get that. I get that. I, oh, God, the one who created everything, spoke all the worlds into existence, hold them all together by the word of his power, knitted the molecules together in my mind, the one who you know, was and is and is to come, that he created me and that I rebelled against him. I defied it, and the penalty for that was hell. But because he loved me so much, he came and stood in the way of justice, his own justice, and died for me. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Uh, you know, I just... It's affected my life a little bit. I'm a little bit more moral than I used to. I don't curse nearly as much. Occasionally give some money in the offering plate because I feel guilty and I come to church one out every three weeks. That doesn't make any sense. You, you either need to walk out in defiant unbelief and say, that's not true, or you need to fall at his feet and worship. There is no middle ground. And, and he's exasperated. He's like, what else would I have to say if you knew that and you walked away? It just doesn't make any sense. The gospel is that the punishment you deserved was so bad that Jesus had to die for you, but that he was so loving, he was glad to die for you. So his point is, if the gospel doesn't move you, what else is there left to say? What other weapon is there left in God's arsenal besides that one? So I interpret this passage as the author giving a genuine warning, a general, general warning, excuse me, to a congregation, a congregation that is filled with both genuine and superficial believers. He's not attempting to give a description of any one particular person or to lay out the mechanics of individual salvation. If he were doing that, he might have used different terms. Enlightened, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Those are statements about the movement as a whole, and everyone who has shared in that movement has tasted of those things at least to some degree. That's my first observation. Number two, in this passage we see, number two, that the faith that saves is the faith that endures to the end. The faith that saves is the faith that endures to the end. The Bible teaches that once you've been truly saved, you cannot lose it. But it also teaches, listen, 
that one of the signs of genuine faith is that it endures forever. This is a huge recurring theme throughout the book of Hebrews. And we've come across it several times, and out of sheer self-discipline, I have skipped that theme every time we've come to it because I wanted to save it for, for this message. All right, let me give you some of the verses, only from Hebrews. Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ if, if we prayed a really sweet, sincere prayer with our grandmother when we were eight years old and we remember that and she tells us how sincere we were and we went to vacation Bible school for every year after that and became a Jesus freak until we were 16. Is that what it says? No, we have come to share in Christ if we hold that confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness and unforgiveness can grow up in somebody's heart and kill their faith. I've watched it happen here. And what had such a promising beginning ultimately ends up choking out and dying, and it causes them to fail to obtain the grace of God. Hebrews 10, verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. There are some who start well and then shrink back and their souls are destroyed. And then here in Hebrews 6, same chapter, look down at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. You see that? You'll have the full assurance of hope if you endure to the end. So on the one hand, I believe that once saved, always saved, because the Bible clearly teaches that. But on the other, that only those who endure to the end will be saved. And that if you shrink back or fall away, you will not be saved. The only way that those can both be true is that one of the signs of truly saving faith is that it endures forever. That's the only way both of those Verses, it's the only way they can all be true. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus told a story. If you've been in church, you're familiar with this, about a farmer who went out to scatter some seed on different kinds of soil. And Jesus said there was one kind of soil that evidently had a very pretty rich top layer. And so when the seed hit that soil, immediately it sprang up quickly. And so there was this immediate, very encouraging fruit. Jesus said, but it didn't have any depth to it. And so as a result, the roots never went down deep in the ground so that when the sun came out, these same plants withered and died. Or when the weeds grew up around it, it choked out the plants because they didn't have roots that went deeper than the weeds of materialism and doubt. All right? Now, these short-lived seeds, these seeds that started so well and then ultimately end up withering and, and dying out, in Jesus' parable, do they represent saved or unsaved people? They represent unsaved people who for a while looked like they were saved people. Jesus said, Luke 8, 13, they believed for a while, but in a time of testing, they fell away. These are people who come, they get involved, they pray a prayer to invite Jesus into their heart, they get baptized, but then they dry up and fade away. They had such an encouraging beginning, but in the end, they withered and were cast out. And what that shows you is that the difference between saving faith and superficial faith has nothing to do with the intensity of emotion at the beginning, but it's duration over time. Faith that fades, no matter how luscious its first fruits, is not saving faith. 
I used to see this all the time um, when I used to speak at high school student camps um, or middle school student camps. Or uh, I used to, I, I do it occasionally now. I did it a couple weeks ago. This next week, I'm going to be with our teenagers. Oh, yeah. You need to believe God. Uh, Jason Gaston and I will be with them all week uh, right here in front of us. Um, but uh, when I used to do it all the time, I would see this. I, I could tell when it was about to happen. Um, you know, so by Thursday night, it's like the last night of camp. Um, everybody, you know, they've gotten two and a half hours of sleep every night up until then. So they are emotionally exhausted. And so, you know, the last night, the band's playing all everybody's favorite songs, and everybody's all hyped up. I get up there, and I start, you know, preaching the sermon, and I could see it. On the third row, there'd be a, a set of, like, 14-year-old girls. And I would say something in the message that would remind one of them about the boyfriend that broke up with her right before camp, and that would make her feel sad and lonely. And so she would start to cry. Well, the girl next to her sees that she's crying. She doesn't know why she's crying, but if she's crying, I should probably cry, right? And then I would watch it happen, bing, 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 all the way down the line. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like a disease with, you know, high school girls, just the way it just it spreads. And so, you know, we give the response time at the end, and the whole row, all of them would stand up. They'd come down here at the little altar. They would all hug, and they would cry, and they would snot all over the altar, and they would make promises not to date boys until they're 30, and they're going to be missionaries, and they would have a hug fest, and then they would um, hold hands and walk back to their dorm and sing Kumbaya till 2 a.m., talk about how awesome it is to be a Christian, and that would last until about 10 o'clock the next morning, at which point all of that would be gone. And then they would come back the next year, and we would just go through the same cycle, rinse and repeat. Right? It doesn't matter how intense the emotion is that begins it. The test of saving faith is that it endures to the end. Listen to me. Pray in a prayer to ask Jesus in your heart, even if it's followed by a flurry of emotion and religious fervor, is not proof that you're saved. Enduring in that faith to the end is. That's why, I probably shouldn't tell you this, when somebody comes up to me and they're like, oh, J.D., I trusted Christ. I'm always like, praise God, and I slap them on the back and we have a word of prayer together. Inside, I'm like 80% happy. And 20% of me is like, we'll see, we'll see. You come back to me a year later and you're like, I'm still walking with Jesus. At that point, I get a little bit more excited. I'm like 90%. You come back to me 10 years later and you're still walking with Jesus, I'll do a backflip right in front of you. Because I know that one of the signs of really genuinely saving faith is that it endures, that it never fades away, and it goes on to the end. It is true that once saved, always saved, but it is also true that once saved, forever following. If salvation has really taken place in your heart, it never fades away. You stumble, yes, and you fall often, but you always get back up eventually looking at Jesus. Now I know. That raises some questions for some of you about what it means when you stumble and fall, or what that means for you when your, your, your faith goes through a season where it cools, and I'm going to get to those questions in just a second. But before I do, let's first consider what that phrase means, that it is impossible to renew those who have fallen away to repentance, because that's a tough phrase, right? So let's talk about that, and then I'll get to your questions. Verse 4, for it is impossible to restore those who have fallen away again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, again, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, again, the writer cannot mean that those who fall back into sinful habits after they're saved have forfeited their chances of salvation. How do I know that? Because even the greatest Christians in the Bible fell back into old sinful habits, sometimes really bad ones, and sometimes for long periods of time. It's called backsliding. Backsliding is a church word that just means you slide back into sin. Peter, the apostle, after he'd followed Jesus for three years, 
denied Jesus three times in the space of one evening. After the Holy Spirit came, Peter went through a several-month period where he lived as a racist to the point that the apostle Paul had to get in his face in front of the entire church and be like, you're the head apostle and you're a racist. That's a pretty bad sin. One of Paul's traveling companions, a guy named John Mark, abandoned the mission field because it got difficult. He got scared, and so he just left. I mean, leaving the apostle Paul, that's not a good idea. Imagine what that was like in that guy's church congregation. And we welcome back John Mark, who was with the apostle Paul and decided it was too tough, and so he left and came home. I mean, we're talking, that's a pretty bad thing, but what you find later is that this guy eventually was restored and went back on the mission field. King David committed adultery, murder, and lied about it and refused to repent for nearly a year. Abraham, whom the writer uses at the end of this chapter, if you look down in verse 15 of chapter 6, the writer uses Abraham as an example of persevering faith. Abraham doubted God so severely that he told another man his wife was his sister so that this guy could sleep with her so that this guy wouldn't kill Abraham. Now, I mean, that's, that's more than, like, that's dirtbag level sin, right? I mean, oh yeah, I don't, who's this woman? Oh, she's my sister. Oh, you want to marry her? Go ahead. I mean, that's Abraham, and he's used as an example of persevering faith. All of these believers were brought back to repentance, restoration, and great usefulness for the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul even describes a church member sleeping with his mom, whom he calls on the church to discipline, which means put outside of the fellowship of the church and treat them like an unbeliever. But the remarkable thing to me about that whole deal is that the purpose, Paul said, of that discipline was, quote, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, to restore his soul to God. Here you got a guy, this guy's sin was not a mistake. It was not a moral lapse. It was not a moment of temptation. I mean, sleeping with your mom is a pretty twisted Jerry Springer level sin. You agree? Now, it was likely his stepmother, yes, but if you sleep with anybody you've ever called mom, I feel like you're pretty far gone. Can we agree on that? When one day you call her mom, the next day you take her to the prom, that's just messed up. <laughs> Yet Paul believed that this guy could be brought back. Paul believed this guy could be brought back because Paul knew from experience that Jesus saves really bad sinners. Jesus said, John 6, 37, that no one who came to him would ever, he would ever for any reason ever cast out, ever. That means if you are willing to repent, he will always receive you. So what then does the writer mean when he says that it is impossible to renew those who've fallen away to repentance? Well, again, remember, he's making a general comment. And what he's saying is this. Scripture in several places, listen, Scripture in several places talks about rejecting God's voice so often and so decisively that God finally offers our refusal and leaves us alone forever. God says in Genesis my spirit will not always strive with man. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus refers to this as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where you say no to God so deliberately, so decisively, and so persistently that God finally says, have it your way. And Jesus said, for that refusal, for that final blasphemy, there is no forgiveness. Now, I know many, including some in this room, who fear that they have committed this blasphemy and thus forfeited their opportunity to be saved. I felt like that for a while. I thought, you know, I just, I, there were some things I knew that I walked away from. There was no excuse for it. I knew, I knew it was true. And I sinned so deliberately and so badly 
that I must have committed this blasphemy and I feared that there was no forgiveness for that sin. Now, I don't have time to go through all the passages on the blasphemy of the Spirit here this morning. Though if you go to my blog and you get the transcript, it's always in the upper right-hand corner, it says sermon transcript. If you download it, there are all kinds of resources I've given you if you want to study this more deeply, including Brad Hambrick, um, our, 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 one of our pastors, has written a blog this week. You can access it off the Summit RDU site where he talks about this a little bit more. I don't have time to unpack it all this morning, but suffice it to say, as the popular advice goes, if you are worried that you committed that blasphemy, you probably have it. The final falling away to, to which Jesus and the writer of Hebrews are referring includes the removal of any desire to be reconciled to Jesus. It is God, after all, who puts in us the desire to come to him. Thus, your fear about having reached the point of no return is good proof that you have it. If you want to repent, he will always receive you. He will not cast out for any reason, he says, John 6, 37, those who come to him. Furthermore, we should never give up on somebody for whom we're praying on the basis that we think the Spirit of God is no longer striving with them. I, I've heard people say that before. They're like, well, I just quit praying for them because it was obvious the Spirit of God had quit you know, striving with them, and so I just quit. Right? If and when that ever happens to a person, we cannot know it. What we do know is that the Bible is full of stories of God saving people who looked to everybody else like they were beyond all hope. The purpose of these warnings, the purpose is not to help us diagnose stubborn people so that we stop praying for them. The purpose of these warnings is that we feel the urgency of the situation so that we start doing so more persistently. The only time we can ever conclude that God's spirit is no longer striving with someone is when they are dead. When they are dead, you can stop praying. But until that moment, we have the responsibility to pray and they have the opportunity to repent. And you see, I wonder if even in talking about this, there is somebody here who has never come to Christ and you hear these warnings and you say, well, that must be what's happened to me. I fell away after being enlightened. I knew it, and I walked away, and that's why it's impossible for me now to repent. Or you see the writer's analogy about the rain producing only thorns and thistles, and you think, is that what's wrong with me? I heard the gospel, and I didn't repent. Is that because the soul of my heart is so fundamentally bad, that my heart is so fatally flawed, that I am unsavable? For a while, my wife thought that she could not repent because she was not predestined by God for salvation. The gospel she'd heard so many times growing up had failed to take root in her heart, and so she concluded when she graduated high school that something was fundamentally wrong with her heart. God had not predestined her to be saved or whatever, and that's why she hadn't believed. And so when she graduated high school, she concluded that she might as well pursue a life of sin because there was nothing she could do to reverse God's decrees. The Bible, however, simply commands us to repent. It doesn't tell us to wait on something from God. It, it never, never does it tell us to try to spiritually diagnose our own condition or to determine our election status. It just says, if you hear God's voice, Hebrews 3.15, obey today. That means if you are listening to this right now, the choice is entirely yours. You don't, you're not looking to God for something. The choice is yours. You have the opportunity and the obligation right now to repent. And if you obey that voice, God will save you. You see, the gospel message is that your heart is indeed fatally flawed, spiritually dead to be exact. The soil of your heart is corrupt, spiritually dead. The good news of the gospel is that God makes dead hearts 
new. God turns hearts of stone, Ezekiel 36, into hearts of flesh. God brings back life from the dead. He transforms Saul, a pharisaical, Jesus-hating murderer, enemy number one of the early church, into Paul, his greatest spokesman and advocate. He can do that for you, too. You just have to ask him. So don't turn what the writer intended to be an encouragement to repent into a discouragement from it. He is not trying to help you determine your election status. He is trying to communicate the seriousness of the gospel that you've heard and to urge you to obey it today. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. In other words, though I'm talking this way and giving you this warning, I've seen so much in your life that is so clearly evidence of God having worked in you that I don't think this, you're going to fade away. I'm convinced that what the real salvation is happening in you, and I know that one of the signs of that is that it never fades away, so I know you're not going to fade away. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints like you're still doing. He sees so much spiritual fruit in their lives, right? Love for God's name, love for God's people, which proves to him they are saved. So he's convinced that they're not going to fade away since that's one of the signs of, of eternal salvation. The way I describe it, you know, is like this. If uh, a few minutes ago the bumper came up and, uh, you know, the, 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 the video right before I get up to, to, to speak and, you know, the lights come up and video goes off and this stage is empty. And it's awkward for like two minutes. Everybody's looking around like, where's JD and what's going on? All of a sudden I come busting in from this door over here and uh, I come running in, my shirt tail's half out, I, you know, I, I'm out of breath. I got, I got dirt smudge all over one side of my face. I'm profusely sweating. I walk up here on stage, and I'm like, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. Uh, I know I'm late, um, but you're not going to believe what happened to me. I here on Highway 70 a few minutes ago. I was, I was uh, you know, I was doing my, you know, I was, I was coming here, and as I was uh, coming, I had a flat tire. So I get out on the side of Highway 70 to change it, and I take out, you know, uh, and one of the lug nuts rolls out on Highway 70. So I turn around to get the lug nut. I look up, and coming at me 60 miles an hour, there's a Greyhound bus. Man, just hit me, knocked me, I mean, just, just ran me over. I think the bus driver didn't know what he hit, so he backed up and ran over me again. And, and there I, you know, I got ran over twice by a Greyhound bus. And, you know, so I, you know, I, I got up and I had to dust myself off and, and I jumped back in the car. I got the tire changed and I came on over. That's why I'm late. Now, what's your response to that story? <laughs> You're like, bro, okay, I've heard some pretty lame excuses for being late. That's the worst. Because if, if a Greyhound bus had hit you going 60 miles an hour, you would look different. <laughs> you would talk different. You'd walk different. <laughs> right, there's no way you could have been hit by that kind of power and look like that. And what this writer of Hebrews is saying is, I saw the evidence of God come in your life. So I'm convinced that your faith will endure to the end because I've seen the evidence of it at the beginning. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. How do you have the full assurance of hope? You endure to the end. So his message is persevere, because if you don't persevere, you weren't saved to begin with. Here's the irony. If you heed the warning, you can have the hope. If you don't heed the warning, you can't have the hope. The evidence that you had the hope is that you heeded the warning. So if you heed the warning, that shows that you're saved because one of the signs of truly saving faith is that it endures to the end. 
The faith that saves is the faith that endures. Yes, once you are truly saved, you can never lose it, but once you're saved, you will never stop following. So once again, once saved, always saved, but also once saved, forever following. Wayne Grudem, my favorite theologian, summarizes it like this. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Or a slightly less academic-sounding definition. A faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. Right? That's the one I prefer, okay? A faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. Now, I know, here's a question some of you have had. You're like, I got struggles with sin. Sometimes I, I doubt. Sometimes I fall back. Sometimes I struggle. Sometimes I grow cold. Sometimes my spiritual life lags. Does that mean that I'm not saved? Every Christian has times where they backslide in sin. We all do it. Technically, anytime you sin, you are backsliding. I do it dozens of times a day. That doesn't mean that I'm not saved. Doesn't mean you're not saved. So here's the question people ask. How long can you backslide before you conclude you weren't saved to begin with? Six months, is that it? Is that the magic number? How about 12 months? Because Jesus was 12 when he went to the temple. Maybe that means something. How about five years, five years? Maybe 30 years, 33 years, because how Jesus was when he died, right? Is that... Is that the answer? There's no clear answer on this because the Bible never specifies a time limit. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, some of the greatest Bible heroes like David and Peter and others fell back into sin for a pretty considerable amount of time before God brought them back to their senses. On the other hand, there are those, the Apostle John says, who, quote, went out from us because they were not of us. The reason they fell away is because they weren't genuinely saved. They were like the seeds that sprang up quickly and faded away. How do you know if somebody's not genuinely saved or if they're just backsliding. Well, for some people, their life change at their conversion was so significant and their lapse into sin was so brief that it's obvious their conversion took place in the past and this time of backsliding is just a temporary lapse. That seems to be the case with the people the writer in Hebrews is addressing. It's like, I saw how big the change was. I know you're not gonna fall away for long because it was so significant here, it was such a moment. And this is so temporary. For other people, the opposite is true. There was hardly any life change after their initial profession of faith. And at some point, they get reawakened to the gospel. And so they start to count that as their true conversion, even though they technically prayed the sinner's prayer a long time in the past. That happens all the time at this church. And people will say, you know, I, I heard the gospel when I was a kid, and I went through some of the motions. He said, but man, when I, when I started to come here, it was like for the first time, the gospel became alive to me. He said, my faith became real. And for those people, that's pretty clear that their conversion happened here, not when they first heard that gospel back when they were kids. So for some people, it's obvious either way, but for other people, the answer is not as obvious. You're just not sure if your reawakening to the gospel was simply repentance from a time of backsliding or if it was your true conversion. Sometimes you just don't know exactly. So you're like, well, pastor, tell me. I want to know. I need to know. Just remember this, at the end of the day, knowing the moment of your conversion is not essential. What is essential is that you know that you are converted now. You see, salvation, listen to this, this is what, where some of the problem comes from. Salvation is essentially, listen, a posture of repentance and faith toward Christ. It is a posture that you begin at a moment, but you maintain for a lifetime. 
The best way to know that you made the decision to repent and believe in the past is that you are in a posture of repentance and belief now. The way I often try to describe that is, uh, and I've used it before, but let me just use this chair, all right? This chair represents the fact that all of your sins are paid for. Jesus paid the full penalty of it. It's finished forever. This chair also represents the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. To become a Christian means that you sit down in that chair so that I transferred the weight of my soul off of my legs and onto that chair. So, chair. so right now, if you ask me, how do I know that I am trusting in Christ? Well, how do I know I trust in Christ? Because I'm doing it right now. How do, I know that I, how do I know that I made the decision to sit in this chair? How do I know? Is it because I can articulate with clarity and passion and emotion the moment that I made the decision to sit down because I could describe to you what I was thinking, what I'm feeling, how I looked at the chair, and, and, and what happened after? Is that how you know that I made the decision to sit down in this chair? No, I'm sitting there now. How do you know that you made the decision to follow Jesus? You are in that posture right now. Does that make sense? For many of you, you, salvation was like this prayer that you prayed and, and, and you keep going back to that moment and that authenticates whether or not the moment was real. The best proof that you made the decision is that you are seated there right now. Knowing when you were seated is helpful. Knowing that you are seated is what is essential. Listen, as a believer, you will struggle with indwelling sin for the rest of your life. The greatest saints have, unsuccessfully often, to the point that it almost drove them to despair. That's why I love the hymn writer. This is probably, probably never truer words were written by a hymn writer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What happens when you are a believer is that struggle that takes place for the rest of your life, that struggle is really good proof that you are genuinely born again. It's like Tom Schreiner says, perseverance is not perfection, but it is a new direction. Proverbs 24, 16, I love this. Look at this. <laughs> One of my favorite Old Testament verses. The righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again. Seven times. Imagine you were at the mall watching somebody fall seven times. You're walking through the mall and somebody just, <laughs> just falls. And you're like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they get up and fall a second time. And you're like, Dang. They do it a third time, you get out your smartphone and you video this and text message it to a friend. They do it a fourth time, you post it on YouTube and it goes viral. They do it a fifth, sixth, and seventh time, you feel bad for putting it on YouTube because there must be something wrong with that person. You conclude they're not right if they fell seven times in a row. The righteous falls seven times. The righteous doesn't show that he's righteous by the fact that he never falls. He shows that he's righteous by what he does when he falls. Whether or not you believe the gospel is shown by what you do when you fall not shown by what you, by the fact that you never fall. The righteous man, he just, he, there's something wrong with him spiritually. There's something wrong with all of us spiritually. We keep falling. Whether or not you are saved is shown by what you do when you fall and whether or not you get back up looking the same direction. Do you have a trajectory of life that points you? I know you got bitter struggles with sin. I know that because I have them. But you always get back up looking toward Jesus. Can I tell you the ones that I'm worried about? And I am worried about some of you. I'm worried about the ones of you that don't struggle. Who are okay with the fact that your Christianity is surface level. You come to church about one every three weeks. You're not really involved in a small group. People aren't speaking into your life. You're not serving God. You, you give some guilt money when I make you feel like it. But, you know, it's just not, 
you're not growing and you're content to not grow. And I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty because if you start doing all those things, that won't make you saved. I'm just saying that the evidence that you're not growing and content in not growing is a really disturbing proof to me that you might not really be born again. So those of you that are struggling, I'm not worried about you, it's those of you who are not struggling that I worry about the most. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. You see, this is a warning to you. It's a warning to a bunch of you who think that because you prayed a prayer in the past, everything's okay. Even though you're not walking with Jesus now, not pursuing him now, and I am telling you, listen to me very clearly, Hebrews 6 screams at you, the faith that saves is the faith that endures. And that means that if you are not walking with Jesus now, whatever decision you made in the past was the wrong one. Because the full assurance of hope comes only from resting in Jesus in the present. I know that when I say things like this, I know that there is a chance that there are some genuine believers in here who may get rattled. And honestly, y'all, church, I feel a tension because I know that when I talk this way and I give these warnings, there are people who are genuinely saved who are going to be shaken. But I also know that if I don't give these warnings, there are people who are not saved who are going to go to hell. And I've got to be able to do both because the Bible gives both. The Bible speaks in some places. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. And then it turns around and says, you are a child of God and you are in the hands of God and you can never perish and he will never let you go. So see, I give both, I have sympathy for both groups because I've been in both categories. Growing up, there was a time when I wasn't saved, but I thought I was because I prayed a prayer. And it was a Sunday school teacher who got in my face and said, one of these warnings, Matthew 7, many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And I'm glad that Sunday school teacher put his finger in my face and woke me out of my slumber before I went into eternity thinking I was saved. But I also know what it's like to never be able to gain the assurance of salvation. You know, for between that age when I really was saved, and you know, I've told you that I prayed the sinner's prayer 5,000 times between the ages of 14 and 19. And I told you, if there were a Guinness Book of World's Records for how many times I prayed the sinner's prayer, I would be the number one contender. I've been saved in every denomination. I've been saved in youth camps all over the nation. Everybody's got a record of J.D. Greer getting converted in their, in their denominational list. It's awesome. Um, I know what it's like to not be able to find that, and I know the struggle of both. So what I, I point you back to is simply what I shared a minute ago, this chair. This chair represents the fact that Jesus paid for all your sin. It represents the fact that Jesus is Lord. You are in one of two positions right now. You are either seated in submission to Jesus as Lord, or you are standing in defiance and you are ruling your own life. You are either seated with all your hope for heaven on what Jesus accomplished for you. You just believe it. Or you're, you are standing, hoping that you can be good enough to earn your own way to heaven. You are in one of two postures right now. Which of those postures are you in? If I asked you about your decision to sit down in that chair, and you're like, oh, let me tell you about it. And man, you start telling me about your decision to sit down in that chair, and you start getting misty-eyed and you speak with passion about it and you show me something in your Bible where, you know, your grandmother cried on it and Billy Graham signed it and you're like, see, there's proof. I'm like, but you're not sitting there now. You're either sitting in belief and surrender or right now you are standing in rebellion and unbelief. If you are not seated right now, I don't care what happened in the past. The invitation is for you right now to have a seat in submission and belief. Salvation is a posture that begins at a moment and continues for a lifetime. Are you in that posture right now? 
If not, that invitation is for you to repent and believe. Right now. Why don't you bow your heads at all of our campuses, if you would. Where are you with this? Don't look back to a past memory. Look to a present posture. The past memory is good. The present posture is proof. Right now, right now, at this moment, are you surrendered to Jesus as Lord? I don't mean are you perfect, but I mean is he in control? If not, then I would invite you right now to voice a prayer to God that sounds something like this. Jesus, I surrender. I sit down right now in submission to you. Right now, what do you hope to get you to heaven? Do you hope that God grades on the curve? Do you hope you'll be good enough? Or do you understand that Jesus said he paid it all? That he has paid the full penalty of your sin debt? If so, right now, would you just sit down in that and say, Jesus, I receive it. I receive it as my own. Salvation is not a prayer that you pray. It's a posture that you take. A posture that begins at a moment and last for a lifetime. Right now, sit down in repentance and belief in the finished work of Christ. Father, give clarity where I have been unclear. Speak with conviction. Confirm the saints. Awaken the lost. Whether they've been in church all their lives or whether this is their first time. Awaken them to the urgency of the gospel, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.